Why don't we dive in? Welcome back. Just one quick note. Given unforeseen things, such as having Sam class here, my whole schedule is off one week. So normally we don't have discipleship classes in July. But I think what I'll do is I'll go ahead and teach the last class in this class next Sunday, July 2nd. So anyone who wants to come is welcome. I'll probably throw out an email about it this week. That being said, that's what we're going to that's what we're going to do. We'll do Zephaniah and Haggai today and then Zechariah and Malachi next time. Obviously, that's a lot to do in one class given the length of Zechariah, but we'll do the best that we can. Okay. Well, well let's uh, pray and then we'll dive into Zephaniah. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do praise you this morning. We praise your Son, our King and Savior. We praise you, Holy Spirit. We thank you for the work that you've done in our lives to redeem us from sin and death, to bring us uh, from spiritual death to spiritual life, to grant us the adoption as sons, our justification and the hope of heaven. We thank you for the fact that you have given us the scripture and Father, that you have illumined our hearts by the Spirit to understand it and to accept it as your word. We pray that you would feed and nourish our souls by it this morning. We know that man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from your mouth. And so we we look forward to feasting upon your word this morning, both in this class as well as in the service. And we pray that you would so work in our souls that we would be changed by it to know you more and to be able to walk in your ways better as a result. And so we pray that even uh, this morning as we dive into Zechariah and Haggai, that you would help us to understand these books and to digest the truths you have for us in them. Help me to teach clearly and effectively, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, well, let's start with Zephaniah. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to Zephaniah chapter 1, We'll start there. Obviously, this is another one of those books that is somewhat obscure to us, probably. It is interesting, though, that Zephaniah is the only one of the prophets, in of the writing prophets, that we are given an extended genealogy of. So, sometimes they will name the father of the prophet, but... In this case, they give us a, a, a genealogy that traces back Zephaniah uh, through Hezekiah. So if you read in Zephaniah 1, it says, The word of the Lord, verse 1, The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah. And what that probably means, assuming this is King Hezekiah, is that this particular prophet, Zephaniah, was of the royal family. So he was a descendant of the king, Hezekiah. He was in the Davidic line. And obviously that adds a little bit of punch to the fact that he is bringing a message of judgment against Judah and Jerusalem as one of the royal family. And, you know, that is probably why we are given an extended genealogy of him is because of his sort of unique descendancy. In terms of the date, well, you see that it says in verse 1, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, 
So, this is the reign of Josiah, which was obviously very late in terms of the history of the kingdom of Judah. Josiah was the last of the righteous kings prior to things going very much downhill after that and a rapid succession of wicked kings after Josiah. And you'll remember that Josiah was an anomaly in the sense that he came after Manasseh. Manasseh was the longest reigning king in Judah's history. He reigned for over 50 years. And unfortunately, he was also the most wicked of all the kings. The litany of things that he did was so bad that it was his reign that led to God saying, that's it, the kingdom of Judah is going to be destroyed. So even though Josiah was one of the most righteous kings in, in Israel's history, so it was Manasseh, his son Ammon for only a short period of time, and then Josiah. Josiah was very righteous, but all that his reform efforts did was spare him from the judgment that was coming. Okay, so there you see his date, 640 to 609 were the dates, and that, that means, again, very late in the history of the, nor- of the southern kingdom. Obviously, the southern kingdom finally fell to the Babylonians in 586 B.C., all right. So that brings us to the recipients. Who was he ministering to? Obviously, as I've been saying, he's ministering to the people of Judah. And so this is during the reign of the last righteous king who's seeking to reform the nation after Manasseh's long and wicked reign. Okay, so that's a little bit of the background of Zephaniah. Any questions about Zephaniah before we dive in? Okay. Well, we're going to walk through the book. I'm actually going to read, hopefully, the the entirety of these two prophets. They're very short, or relatively short. In terms of Zephaniah, chapter 1 is all about the coming of the day of the Lord, which you know in Scripture is simultaneously a reference to a day of judgment. And then also, in the end, the ultimate day of the Lord is also a day of salvation for God's people. So... The first chapter, is it's a very interesting chapter. As we walk through it, this is what you're going to see. You're going to see in verses 1 through 3, a day of judgment coming for the whole earth. Then in the last verses of the chapter, a day of judgment for the whole earth. Sandwiched in between those announcements of the great day of judgment, is the announcement of a day of judgment for Judah and Jerusalem. So you see it's sort of a sandwich. Day of, final day of judgment, final day of judgment, and in the middle is the day of judgment for Judah and Jerusalem. And I believe that the reason why that is, is because, like so often in the prophets, they like to put these lesser day of judgments up right up against the great day of judgment, because this foreshadows this, right? And so often they're put together because one is serving as a type of the other. So you could think of redemptive history as this succession of days of judgment. You know, the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, the Tower of Babel, on and on, all the way through history. You know, the the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the various nations, Babylon and Assyria, etc., All the way along, days of judgment, days of judgment, days of judgment, all as harbingers leading up to 
the great day of judgment at the end of history, such that all of these lesser days of judgment are foreshadowing and pointing us forward to. And of course, there are some judgment days that are, you know, greater than others, like the flood was a universal day of judgment. So it sort of stands up. If you had a bar graph, you know, it'd be like small bars. And then that the flood is like a big bar. <laughs> that really typifies the final day of judgment in a, a special way. But So that's what we have here. And so let's read through it. I think you'll see what I'm talking about. We'll start in verse 2. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. By the way, when you hear that type of language, birds of the heavens, fish of the sea, you should hear echoes of the creation narrative, right? And so what this is, is a sort of an undoing of creation in the final day of judgment. What God made in the beginning will be destroyed in the end. And of course, on the other side of that, remade in the new creation. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. And now we go, we zoom back to Judah. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the names, the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests those who bow down on the roofs to the hosts of heaven, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traitors are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, The Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Their goods will be plundered, and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. And now we go back to the universal day of judgment, although it's somewhat of a muddy transition here where you're not quite sure if he's still talking about Jerusalem because it talks about the mighty man cries aloud but very soon it becomes clear that there is a universal scope to this the great day of the Lord is near near and hastening fast the sound of the day of the Lord is bitter the mighty man cries aloud there a day of wrath is that day a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither shall their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. 
for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Okay, very sobering. You see certain themes such as this is clearly intended to scare you. It's not like he's giving you a dispassionate description, right? And that's because this these days of judgment, both the near and the far, are frightening. Right? They're, they're to be fleed from. He's, he's wanting. So you think of, if you've ever read uh, Jonathan Edwards' Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, it's clear that he's trying to frighten the people that are listening, right? Because he wants them to be scared of the wrath that's coming so that they will flee from it, so that they will repent. And, and that, that's not an unbiblical thing. That is clearly biblical. You can't read a passage like this and think, well, you know, the Lord never wants us to be scared of things. No, he clearly does. He's describing it in that way. And he's telling you it's coming fast. It's near. It's right at the door. So you think of how Jesus talked about his return and all the, the final judgment and accountability that's coming as like a thief in the night. You know? So be ready. You know, be ready for it to come. And then you see the the totality of it. He describes the foreign armies as searching Jerusalem with lamps, looking for every last person so that they can be destroyed. And then when you come to the final judgment, you know, a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. And so these are types of themes that you see connected in with judgment described in the opening chapter. The second chapter here we see that the, the lens of judgment turns from Judah and Jerusalem to the nations. And so he focuses now on the enemy nations of Israel around them. And what you'll see is that he describes how he's going to judge Israel's enemies and in the process redeem Israel from their tyranny. So this is another theme is that there is... There's a, there's a whole book written by a professor at Southern where he, he walks through the, the entire Bible and he describes the theme of salvation through judgment, right? You think of the Exodus. He judges, he judges Egypt with ten plagues and in the process redeems Israel out. Salvation through judgment. And there, that is a theme that runs throughout Scripture. And you see here in this second chapter that he's going to redeem his people by judging their enemies, and you ask, well, what about, he just said that he's going to judge Judah and Jerusalem. How is he going to now redeem them as he judges their enemies? Well, that's because of the whole theme of remnant theology, right? It's not all of Judah and Jerusalem. He's bringing judgment upon them, but he is going to save a remnant on the other side of it. So let's turn to chapter two here. This is what you're going to see. You're going to see Judah called to repent before the day of judgment comes in order to escape. And you're going to see the Lord is going to judge the enemies of Judah, Philistia, Moab, Ammonites, Cush, Assyria, and he's going to save his people in the process. Okay, so this is chapter two. Gather together. Yes, gather, O shameless nation. By the way, shameless doesn't mean that they have no shame. It means that they're not ashamed of the things that they are doing, right? They sin without blushing. That's, you know, does that sound familiar? Uh, gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect. By the way, the fact that he focuses uh, on a nation there 
indicates that he seems to be turning back to Judah, to talking to them. Before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. So, especially after the day of, after the reign of Manasseh, the judgment that was coming upon Judah and Jerusalem was certain. God had fixed it. He was not going to go back. But what he's saying here is that those who repent may be hidden, may be kept through the judgment. You know, like Noah and the eight who were kept in the ark through the judgment. That those who repent might be preserved through it. And then he says, For Gaza shall be deserted, and Ashkelon shall become a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon, and Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to you, inhabitants of the sea coast, you nation of the Cherethites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. And you, O sea coast, shall be pastures with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah on which they shall graze. And in the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening for the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. So he's going to wipe out the Philistines and give their land to a remnant of his people who will dwell there in security. Salvation through judgment. Verse 8, I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and made boasts against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salts, pits and a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. This shall be their lot in return for their pride because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be awesome against them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth, and to him shall bow down each in its place all the lands of the nations. Okay, so there was the Ammonites, and now also the Cushites, which remember, that's North Africa, roughly what we would call Ethiopia, an ancient civilization. You also, O Cushites, shall be slain by my sword. And he will stretch out his hand against the north. And now we turn to Assyria. And destroy Assyria. And he will make Nineveh, capital of the Assyrian Empire, a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. Herd shall lie down in her midst, all kinds of beasts. Even the owl and the hedgehog shall lodge in her capital. So, if wild creatures are dwelling in your city, that shows what has happened to your city, right? It's basically ruins. Herds shall lie down in her midst, all kinds of beasts. Even the owl and the hedgehog shall lodge in her capitals. A voice shall hoot in the window. Devastation will be on the threshold, for her cedar work will be laid bare. This is the exultant city that lives securely, that said in her heart, I am and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become, a lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fist. That's an ominous and sober thing. He's saying, you know, Nineveh, that great capital city, there's going to be owls hooting in, you know, the ruins and hedgehogs living inside the palaces. It's going to be ruins. It's a sober reminder that the Lord can bring down mighty nations. 
And then finally, that brings us to the third chapter. And we're just going to walk through this a little bit more carefully. Verses 1 through 5, we see the Lord will judge Jerusalem for its wickedness. So let's read that. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. And you think at this point, well, maybe he's still talking about Nineveh, because that's what he had been talking about. But then as you work through it, you realize, no, no, he switched back now to his own people because he talks about she accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord, right? We've switched back here. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. So it's very interesting the way that he does that. huh? He's talking about Nineveh and how they're a wicked city. They're going to be destroyed. And all of a sudden, with no warning now, talking about Jerusalem in the same kinds of terms. And it kind of shows you what's happened. Jerusalem has become like Nineveh, like the nations, like the wicked nations around her. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. So it's interesting just, you know, as you watch the descent of God's covenant people, their judges have become wicked. Their leaders have become wicked. Their religious leaders have become profane. They profane what is holy, right? Kind of reminds you of, <laughs> of many churches in our day. All right, verses uh, 6 through 8 now, it says, The Lord will judge the nations in his wrath. I have cut off nations, their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling will not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey... So the Lord is pictured here like a lion hiding in the grass that suddenly is going to rise up and capture them as a prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. By the way, the language of jealousy is very interesting, isn't it? Because we don't usually use that word in a positive sense. But actually, the Old Testament repeatedly uses that of the Lord, that he is a jealous God. Even going back to the Ten Commandments, you know, you shall worship no other gods before me because the Lord your God is a jealous God. Now, it reminds you that there is such a thing, just like there is sinful anger and righteous anger, that there is such a thing as a, a holy jealousy. And the holy jealousy has to do with God's ownership ownership, for instance, of his covenant people, that like a husband to his wife, he is jealous to, when he sees them uh, committing adultery against him. Well, there's a sense in which that is true of all the earth. Why would he be jealous of human beings as a whole and their idolatry? Because we owe him. He created us. Right. Because we're his creatures, because we're made in his image, right? This is at the core of why people don't understand the nature of sin. 
So they don't understand that they belong to God and that they bear his image and that they owe him. <laughs> there's, a sen- there's a sense in which that's a good way of describing it. Verse 8, all the earth shall be consumed. Now that brings us to the next section, verses 9 and 10. This is a very interesting section because what you see is a allusion to the Tower of Babel where God scattered the nations because he confused their languages. And here in this part, we're going to turn now from a predominantly a theme of judgment to a theme of redemption. How he's in the midst of judging the nations, he's also going to redeem a remnant. He's going to do... He's going to reverse the effects of the Tower of Babel. Where the speech was confused, he's going to unconfuse them and give them a pure speech. And so here the tide is turning a bit in the letter to announcement of good news, of redemption. And this, in these verses, for a remnant of the nations. Because you go, well, how could it be? How could he save the nations and judge the nations? Well, the answer is always this sort of remnant theology that he's going to judge Judah he's going to judge Israel and he's going to save Israel because he's not going to save all Israel he's going to save some a remnant he's going to judge the nations and he's going to save the nations because he's not going to save save all the nations but a remnant right so verse 9 at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughters of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. And now we come to the next section where we see the Lord is going to redeem a remnant of Israelites. So from a remnant of the nations to a remnant of Israelites. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. Do you see the remnant theology emerging? He's going to judge Israel. He's going to remove from their midst all who are proud and haughty. And what's going to be left? The humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. So this is a purging, a purification through the preservation of a remnant. Uh, They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. So they are humble and lowly. They trust in the Lord. They are marked by justice, and they enjoy the security before God. So this is looking to, on the other side of judgment, a preservation of a remnant, both of the nations, a reversal of the Tower of Babel, and of a remnant of Israel. And then finally, the last section of the book. And it's interesting that as negative as the book has been so far, right, it sort of ends on this very positive note of joy because he's just announced Uh, the salvation and purification of a remnant, both from the nations and Israel. And now he's going to just, the prophet here, this who had been so doom, (laughs) doom and gloom, is going to announce with joy the final state of Judah and Jerusalem. So verse 14 through 20. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O Israel. 
Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it should be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcasts. I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in, at that time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. What a wonderful ending. And, you know, it is interesting that he talks about the king of Israel, Yahweh himself, being in their midst, and how that's going to coincide with all that he talks about here. And while this isn't an explicitly messianic passage, perhaps, speaking of, you know, the seed of David to come, yet there there is a sense in which you see from the New Testament perspective how these themes come together. How is it that the king of Israel and who is Yahweh would be in their midst? Well, from the New Testament perspective, you recognize that. Well, a voice cried in the wilderness and said, Make way, prepare the way of the Lord, Yahweh. Yahweh did come in the form of the Messiah and is ruling and reigning at God's right hand as their king. And it is interesting as you hear, I will save the lame and gather the outcasts and I will change their shame into praise. So there's this, there's this emphasis upon the fact that unexpectedly he's going to come and he's going to take those who are least and and oppressed and and suffering and lowly and he's going to make he's going to save them and he's going to liberate them from their oppressors so it's a you can see clearly the echoes here of what was to come in the messianic redemption all right so just briefly now the teaching of zephaniah well it teaches us that there's going to be a great day of judgment which in which God will destroy the entire earth and destroy mankind for its wickedness, and that that day of judgment was typified by prior judgment events like the destruction of Judah and Jerusalem. You also see that humanity should be terrified over the prospect of the final day of judgment. That God isn't just like, well, the day of judgment is coming. He's like, you know, he describes it in such a way that people would be afraid because they should be afraid. Um, and then also that humanity must humble themselves and repent. You have that call in chapter 2, 1 through 3 to repent. You know, no, no one's going to keep the day of judgment from coming, but you can escape it if you will repent before it comes. And so that's a theme you see. And then also that the final day of judgment uh, on the world is going to coincide with a final gracious salvation of a remnant, of God's people, who would turn out to be a remnant not just from the nation of Israel, but also from the nations. And then finally, that those that are saved is going to be include not just a remnant of Israelites, but also a remnant of the nations. That the tower of the effect 
the judgment of the Tower of Babel would be reversed. And then finally, the salvation of God is something that, just as the day of judgment is something to be feared, to quake at, the salvation of God is something to rejoice at, right? And, and, to, and to just think of the magnitude of God's grace and love, that he, he quiets us in his love. He rejoices over those he saves, right, with, his, with gladness. He exalts over his people with singing. What a what an amazing thing to think about, right? And then finally, Zephaniah in the New Testament. Uh, there's only one citation of Zephaniah in the New Testament. That's in Revelation 14:5, where it's describing the mysterious 144,000. And of course, depending on your eschatological views, you're going to interpret that differently. I interpret the 144,000 as being explained later on in the chapter when he turns and sees a multitude from every tongue, tribe, and nation. I think the 144,000 is just a symbolic way of uh, speaking of the, the, the new covenant people of God, the people that are saved through faith in Christ. The redeemed of the Lamb are what they're called in the, um, in the passage. And so it's interesting that Zephaniah 3.13 is cited there in describing the purity of the 144,000 because it would indicate that the prophecy of Zechariah 3 finds its ultimate fulfillment in the the redeemed of the Lamb. The major themes of Zephaniah, I think, are all reflected in the New Testament, so it's only quoted once, but of course, the themes it talks about are there throughout. I I think of 2 Peter. In fact, if you turn to 2 Peter 3, we can just see this real quick. This is just one example of where you can see so many of the themes of Zechariah. The theme of final judgment on the world. 2 Peter 3, 7. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Well, well there it is. That's, that's the, the final judgment that Zephaniah was talking about. And also that people must repent to escape the final judgment. If you look down at verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. If you think about the judgment as like a great flood, well, what's holding back the flood from breaking onto the world right now? God, the very one who, whose judgment is against us, is the one who is restraining his own judgment. Why? Because he's waiting patiently for people to repent before the judgment comes and it's too late. It's an incredible picture. That, that's what J- Jonathan Edwards used, that imagery in his famous sermon. Go and read that sermon. He says, he describes it like a spider hanging by a thread over the fires of hell. And then he says, and the only thing keeping you from falling in is God himself, you know, who's holding you up above. And it's just like, wow, that, that is actually a biblical theme, you know, very vividly portrayed, of course, but... And then the final salvation of a remnant of Jews and Gentiles. You know, if, if you read through Second Peter, it's clear that he's writing to a church, to churches. And he's writing, these churches are made up of Jews and Gentiles. So these are written to all those who are saved through faith in Christ. And yet he describes the final salvation being enjoyed by all those who have been saved through faith in Christ. So... If you look at verses 11 through 13, 
Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth for which righteousness dwell, in which righteousness dwells. Right? So the day of judgment will be for us. We're waiting and hastening it because it will be for, for us the day of final salvation when we enter into the new heavens and the new earth. And then finally, the terror of judgment and the joy of salvation. You can see that in verse in Second Peter as well. The terror of it, verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Terror, right? But then joy, verse 12. We're waiting and hastening the coming day of God because we know it'll be for us a day of final redemption. All right, so, oh, I did forget to mention this, but the whole theme of Babel being reversed, many commentators have recognized that when you come to Acts 2 and you have the Holy Spirit leading the these Jews from all the different parts of the world who are there on the day of Pentecost to speak in languages that they didn't speak, to speak in tongues, and that people who were there heard them in their own language. Uh, many commentators have noticed that there does seem to be a very clear allusion to the Tower of Babel, what happened at Babel was the confusion of languages and at and Acts 2 at Pentecost there was the reversal of that judgment in the new covenant people of God. Uh, sort of indicating that in the church the judgment of Babel is being reversed and people from every who are speaking all these different languages are now part of one covenant community in Christ again by the Spirit. So it's an interesting thing. You could read some commentaries to see that more in depth. Any questions about Zephaniah? I pretty much knew all that. That's what my kids always say. Dad, we already knew that. (laughs) All right. Well, that brings us to Haggai, or Haggai. I just say Haggai. So the author of Haggai, you know, this isn't like Zephaniah. Zephaniah has... It's just almost pure oracles. Haggai, like some of these other prophets, it's really a narrative interspersed with some of Haggai's oracles. So you hear a lot of story in this book, uh, sort of like Ezra and Nehemiah, because they Haggai, Haggai ministered is mentioned in Ezra, for instance. You know, and so you're hearing some more of that story that's told in Ezra and Nehemiah here, but. It does contain the oracles of the prophet Haggai. So, you know, chapter 1, verse 1, you see it. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And then you have an oracle, right? And that's sort of how the book is. You see it again in verse 3 and again in verse 13 and on throughout the book that it, it, it records the deeds the story of Haggai's ministry and some of his oracles. The date? Well, this is corresponding with, this is a post-exilic book, right? So this is corresponding with the fall of Jerusalem has already happened and the return out of exile occurred in 539 BC under Cyrus. Haggai's ministry starts after that. 
So about 20 years after the return of out of exile is when Haggai began his ministry. And it seemed to last for this sort of four-year period between 520 and 516 when Israel was rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. That, that was the, the sweet spot for Haggai's ministry. That's what the Lord raised him up for, is to instigate, to motivate the people to rebuild the temple of God. So 520 to 516, there are four main oracles in the book, and they all are dated. So you see, in the second year of Darius, the king in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, that's verse 1, they're all seemed all the oracles in the book seem to be dated to that first year of his ministry, uh, five twenty. Even though we know from Ezra five one that he continued to minister until the temple was actually completed five in uh, four years later. But all the oracles in this book seem to be from that first year, and so his recipients are those the post-exilic community of uh, Israelites. But actually, if you turn to Ezra, or I can read it for you here, if you turn to Ezra 5.1, it says, now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo. So you see that Haggai and Zechariah are actually contemporaries. They ministered at the same time. To the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of, of the God of Israel who was over them. So the location, it's not like they were all over the country. They were primarily to the exiles that were in Judah and Jerusalem. That was their primary focus in ministry. Okay, a little bit of the historical context. Let me just go through this quickly because for time's sake. The Jews had lived in exile for 70 years after the fall of Jerusalem and the the second and last fall of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is destroyed. The temple is destroyed. They're taken off into Babylon in exile. They lived there for 70 years. And then the Persians took over for the Babylonians, and the first king of Persia, Cyrus, gave them permission to return in 539 BC. I say the first king. The first the king the man who was king when the Persians took over the Babylonians. A relatively small number took advantage of the opportunity, just about fifty thousand Jews, and it mentions them in Ezra two sixty four. And Nehemiah 7.66 actually tells you the number. Somewhere around 48,000 Jews returned. So not all of them. Some of them stayed behind. They were supposed to rebuild the temple. Remember, that's why Cyrus let them go. Go back and rebuild the temple and rebuild Jerusalem. That's what they were sent to do. But what you see in Ezra and Nehemiah is that they lost interest because of various difficulties. Does anyone remember like probably one of the main difficulties that they had that made them stop? Well, the Samaritans were part of it, but there was two fellows. Did they start to like marry foreign women and stuff and get distracted? Well, that, so I, I believe that was probably later on. I mean, I'm sure that some people started to do that right away, but that was seemed to be toward the end that they started to drift away again. But you remember Tobiah and Sanballat and the whole, like, they were stirring up trouble for them, basically. And they, and, and so they, the, the work on the temple stopped because it was too difficult, too hard, right? There's too much opposition. So once they stopped, they began to focus just on building their own houses. And God began to bring covenant curses upon them because they were neglecting his house while they were working on their houses. 
And he raised up leaders, Ezra and two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to lead the people to start rebuilding the temple again. And you also hear of leaders, the governor, Zerubbabel, who was a descendant of David. He's in the line of the Davidic kings. And so he was made governor. And then the high priest, Joshua, of the famous vision in Zechariah, the high priest in his dirty clothes, if you read the R.C. Sproul children's book. So those two are the sort of Israelite leaders that Ezra comes and gets them going. And the two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, speak from the Lord to motivate them to start building. And they start building in 520 B.C. They start rebuilding. And then it's finished four years later. Okay? Just an outline here. I think for the sake of time, we're just going to have to sort of walk through this rather than read the whole book. But the first oracle, remember I said there's four oracles. The first oracle in chapter one, and you can sort of skim through as we go along. The Lord rebukes Israel for building their own households while his house lays in ruins. And that's a striking sort of condemnation, isn't it? Here, I'm your God. My house is still in ruins, and you guys don't care about that. You're focusing on building your own house. So it's like, whoa, I didn't realize, I didn't think about it that way, God. That's a pretty serious thing. And then the Lord explains, this is why you're not prospering. So, you know, a rough parallel to this would be like, you're going through, you have some financial bills. And so you say, well, I don't have enough money to give any to the Lord. And so you just use all your money on your own interests, right? But the more you do that, the more you suffer hardship and lack and loss, and you're like, what's going on? You know, and just imagine the Lord giving you a dream in the middle of the night and saying, well, you're, you know, taking care of your own interests and, and not giving any to me, right? And to the interests of the gospel. That's sort of like what was happening here. He's saying, that's why you're suffering loss and hardship and, you know, your crops aren't growing and there's famine and there's all these things going on because my house is in ruins while you're focusing on your own interests. And then the Lord commands Israel to build his house so that he could be glorified in his house. And then Zerubbabel, the governor, Joshua, the high priest, they respond to Haggai's message and they lead the people to resume work on the temple and that's chapter. That's the first oracle, chapter 1. The second oracle is in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. And in this oracle, the Lord acknowledges to Zerubbabel, He says, hey Zerubbabel, you know, this house that you're building, He says, what do you think? Is it more or less glorious than the previous version, Solomon's temple, right? And the answer was obvious, right? In, in Ezra and Nehemiah, there's the dramatic scene where the some people are rejoicing. Yay, we finished the temple. And then those older men who had seen the previous temple were weeping at the same time because they realized this isn't even as good as the last one. And so the Lord acknowledges that through Haggai to Zerubbabel. Hey, what do you think? Is this house greater or lesser? And the answer is clearly, well, it's lesser. It's not even as good as Solomon's temple. And then he declares to Zerubbabel, a time is coming in the future when the Lord would shake the heavens and the earth, and then the glory of his temple would be greater than the former house. And so let's actually read Haggai 4 through 9, because this is such a key section of the book. 
Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work. In other words, don't be discouraged by the fact that this house isn't as good as the previous one. For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. He says, According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in, and I will fill this house, his temple, with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So he says, I'm going to make a temple that is greater in the latter days. I'm going to shake everything up, the the heavens and the earth. And I'm going to make a temple that will be, I will make my temple greater than 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 it was before. And all the nations, the treasures of the nations will be in it. So it's interesting that, you know, this temple too would not be, you know, Herod would build another temple. And uh, and that too would be destroyed in AD 70. You know, and so you're looking for the greater house because of this prophecy. The third oracle, well, we'll go through this very quickly here. The Lord points to the principle in the Old Covenant law that defilement spreads through touch, not holiness. So in other words, if you have a priest and he touches something, does that make that thing holy? Answer, no. But if you are unclean and you touch something, does that make something unclean? Yes. Like just a basic principle of ceremonial uncleanness. And he says, this is what's happened with you. Your sin in neglecting my house defiled everything that you were doing, everything that your hand was doing. But now that you have repented and you've begun rebuilding the temple, now I'm going to bless you in everything that you do. And then finally, the last oracle is a a very interesting oracle to Zerubbabel, the descendant, the governor, who was of the line of the kings, a descendant of David. And listen to what it says. This is how the book ends. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth. Ah, oh, I know what time that is, right? That's when he's going to make this greater house, right? At the very same time, he says, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother, On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel. You can just imagine him going, me, Lord? My servant, the son of Sheltiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So, just like you looked at the temple and you say, this house? Well, sort of, right? His temple. You also look at Zerubbabel and go, Zerubbabel, Lord? Well, sort of one of his descendants. So this is a a messianic prophecy that one of Zerubbabel's descendants would be given a signet ring, which was that they would have royal authority from God. He'd be his king. Okay, so the teaching of Haggai. This is the last slide. Well, Haggai teaches God's covenant people some important principles about life. 
to place a priority on God's interests over their own. Uh, and if they don't, they could experience God's discipline rather than blessing. So if you just live and, you're, and all you're thinking about is your own, and then God takes second place in everything, you can expect that God may discipline you for that. Second, Haggai predicts some things about the last day. We see it. The Lord is going to make his temple more glorious than in the days of Solomon, and the Lord's going to give royal authority to Zerubbabel, that is to a chosen descendant of David through the line of Zerubbabel. And that brings us to the fulfillment in the New Testament. Well, it is interesting if you turn to Hebrews chapter 12, that Hebrews 12 does cite this uh, great prophecy of a greater house in Haggai chapter 2. So if you turn to Hebrews 12, 26 to 28, he says, now, he says, at that time, his voice shook the earth. And in the context, do you remember what he was talking about? What time did God's voice shake the earth in times past? Sinai, right? And he's contrasting Sinai to something something else. And he says, but now he has promised. And then he quotes Haggai's prophecy. Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And this phrase, he says, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. In other words, this shaking is indicates not just like, this isn't like a good thing, this is a judgment. It's the removal of the heavens and the earth, the removal of the things that he's shaking. That is, things that have been made. In other words, this is the destruction of the present created order. In order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. And you say, well, what can't be shaken? That's going to remain through the destruction of this created order. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And there, most commentators recognize an allusion to Daniel's prophecy about the, the kingdom of the Son of Man, which cannot be shaken. So there seems to be a combination of Haggai's prophecy with an allusion to Daniel 7.14. The kingdom of the Son of Man, of the Messiah, cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. So what I'm arguing is that, and I unpack this more in my sermons on Hebrews, is that what the writer of Hebrews is saying is he's saying that, that prophecy in Haggai about the shaking of the heavens and the earth really was about the destruction of this present created order and how it would give way to to the eternal kingdom of God, which is already here. It will last through the destruction of this created order. And the indication is that we're a part of it. The church, believers, are a part of this kingdom which cannot be shaken. And when the created order itself is shaken and removed, the kingdom of Christ will maintain. And, and if you're talking about the destruction of the present created order, what's got to be on the other side of it? New creation, right? And so I think that in the context of the book of Hebrews, the larger contrast context, he's, he's talking about the new Jerusalem, the, the people who belong to the King Jesus. And he's saying, you know, the, he's anticipating Haggai's prophecy speaks of the removal of the present created order and the endurance of the the kingdom of Christ and the new Jerusalem and the heavenly country, if you want to go back to chapter 11. 
And so I think these are things that are spoken of as 2 Peter 3.10. We saw the destruction of the world, the new creation where only righteousness dwells, right? Or 1 John 2.17 where he said, do not love the world or the things of this world. The things of this world, the world is passing away with all of its lusts. Or Revelation 21 and 22 where after the judgment of this world you have the new Jerusalem coming down, a new creation, right? I think that's what he's, he's saying that Haggai's prophecy finds its ultimate fulfillment in that. And of course, we should note that those two predictions then, a greater house, a greater temple, and someone from the line of Zerubbabel who would be, receive royal authority, seem to be fulfilled in Christ and his church. So again, here's where you would have some disagreement depending on your eschatological views. Obviously, Matthew's genealogy tells us explicitly that who is in the line of Jesus, the Messiah. Zerubbabel, he, he was one of the... So who is the, who is the descendant of Zerubbabel that would receive the signet reading of God? That's Jesus. He's the Messiah. But then the issue of the greater house... It's, it corresponds with the coming of the Messiah because they both occur with the shaking, right? But what is the greater house? This is where I just look at the New Testament and I see all the references to temple in the New Testament other than some historical references to the temple in Jerusalem seem to be references to the church as the new and ultimate dwelling place of God. You know, the, the curtain in the temple has been torn in two. The physical temple gives way now to the church as God's dwelling place. And surely it is glorious, more glorious than the former temple. Christ is its cornerstone. Its foundation is the apostle and prophets. And people from every nation are living stones within it. And so I would argue that that is, that these two things are the fulfillment of what Haggai foresaw. The descendant of Zerubbabel has come. He is, the, is Jesus. And his church is the, is the glorious temple that, whose glory is greater than the former house. The Temple of Solomon. All right. So, any questions on Haggai? All right. Yeah. Just a quick one. Yeah. Um, so, Haggai and Ezra and Nehemiah. I get super confused with the chronology. I think I get it. Yeah. I go and read them, and then I'm confused again. Yeah. <laughs> Is there like a, a source that can help put the the chronology together, or am I supposed to start reading the individual commentary to try to figure out um, how to win? I'd have to think about that, Melinda. I mean, I would imagine that even your study Bible would have some basic tools for understanding that chronology, the post-exilic period. I'd have to look and see if, like, the ESV study Bible might have that. Yeah, I'm sure there is. I'll Let me poke around a little bit on that. But in general, you have two events, the rebuilding of the temple first and then the rebuilding of Jerusalem second. Ezra, Haggai, and Zechariah are here with the rebuilding of the temple. Nehemiah comes later, finishing the city of Jerusalem, right? So that's the general sense of it. But in terms of the dates and all that, I'd have to look. Um, but that's, in general, I think, the, the basic chronology. Any other questions? Yeah, Tom. Uh, so if you happen to have a MacArthur study Bible, page 10 and 11. Ah, that's where it lays out the chronology? Well, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Page 10 and 11 in MacArthur Study Bible lays out the chronology issues. Yeah, it has time on it. 
Okay. Oh, that's good. I, that's why I figured somewhere there's got to be some. Double inspired. Cool. Yeah. Uh, double inspired. <laughs> double inspired. All right. Anyone else? Any other questions? All right. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's close then. Uh, don't forget, next week I'll come back and teach one more class if you want to join us. Father, thank you uh, for our time in the prophets and really our time in the whole Old Testament over these last two classes. We thank you for just this grand overview of the body of revelation that you delivered uh, to your old covenant people and that now has been passed down to us upon whom the ends of the ages have come, as the New Testament writers say, and that we can now look back on the Old Testament with the light of Christ to shine upon it, to teach us how to understand it better. And we, we thank you for that. And Lord, we do just revel in the glorious truths that we've read about. We tremble to think of the final judgment. We rejoice to think of your salvation and all that you have done in Christ. Lord, we're sobered as we read these books, the prophets, because we know that they don't teach us seven steps to a happy marriage. They teach us truths that are hard to swallow at times, tough to digest because they are so sobering and, and brutal at times. But, but they are your holy words and they teach us to, un- to know you as you are and your ways and your purposes. So help us to digest them. Help us to learn and grow from them. And we pray all of this for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.